all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 357 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Revolver Cartridge episode, because, I mean, come on, you knew we had to do it, right? Yes, of course, the 357 Magnum, the revolver cartridge, with a .357 inch bullet diameter. This sucker was created in 1934 and introduced in 1935 and actually started the Magnum era of handgun ammunition. That's right, folks. Known for its highly effective terminal ballistics when used for hunting or defense. And probably Dirty Harry. I just, you know, if you were into the comedic TV version, probably even Sledgehammer. I don't know, but that's what I've got to tell you. And with that wonderful little bit of revolver cartridge knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be a resident Sony employee. Tim! So I am not at all familiar with Sledgehammer. Was it a comedic TV rip of uh, Dirty Harry? Oh, absolutely. Yes. This was a guy who was a cop completely driven to the edge uh, and was totally over the top. And it was if if almost as if you combined Dirty Harry and Barney Fife. Okay, that that's about as good as I can make the comparison. And I realize that for quite a lot of you. You don't know who Barney Fife is, but I would just encourage you to go Google Barney Fife, uh, one bullet or Barney Fife, uh, Andy Griffith show and just kind of see what, what I mean. Um, and you'll kind of put it together. I encourage you to look it up. Uh, maybe watch the intro on YouTube or maybe get some highlights that you could pull up somewhere. Oh, sure. Totally. Yeah. I'm sure that's totally worth. Yeah. Totally worth it. That was mid eighties probably, right? If you grew up, uh, yeah, it's a mid late '80s. Now, well, now I'm curious. Hang on, I gotta pull this up here. Sledgehammer, Sledgehammer TV series. Did you ever watch the police or Files from Police Squad, the TV series featuring Frank Drebin, Leslie Nelson's? Frank oh yeah, Drebin I mean that was became... what the Naked Gun was based on. Yeah, well, no, exactly. All yeah. six episodes, right? I watched all six episodes, rented it, uh, actually rented them at uh, the Blockbuster when I was, I don't know, 13 or something like that, because obviously it was whenever after the Naked Gun had come out. Uh, but yeah, so two seasons on ABC from 1986 to 1988. Sledgehammer! Yeah. <laughs> Cut to the end credits. I, I mean, I, I suppose they didn't feature the song Sledgehammer. Which no. was not Phil Collins. It was uh, who who took over Genesis or who started Genesis? Who was the original lead singer? Oh, Peter Gabriel. There you go. Yeah, Mr. Salisbury Hill himself, Peter <laughs> Gabriel. So uh, Matthew, you had a family reunion over the weekend. How did that go? Those are normally uh, either fun or excruciating. Um, mine was absolutely fun. We I know we mentioned this. I mentioned this earlier in the year. The immediate family here at the old homestead fell in love with this little joint called the Texas Cotton Gin Museum out in Burton. 
And so due to some stuff that had happened last year at the family reunion in terms of how the family was treated by park staff and stuff like that, we were like, well, screw you guys. We're not coming back. And then we needed a new place to go. So I just decided, well, why not? Why not the Texas Cotton Gin Museum? They had a really cool pavilion there that you can rent. And so we did. And, um, yeah, that, and it was fun. The weather was amazing. It was, I mean, literally perfect. Um, we got some great food. Uh, it turns out my, uh, one of my cousins is a practically a barbecue god. Uh, I didn't realize, like, I knew he could, like, you know, use a smoker really well, but man, this guy, like, seriously, I bow to him on brisket. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take him down steaks and chops any day of the week and twice on Sundays, but this guy has got me on brisket, hands down, like, won't even try, would not even try, like, I almost don't ever want to do brisket again. It was that good. Um, so, yeah, everything was just absolutely amazing. We had a great time. I got to pass the reins on. I've been kind of in charge. I've been heavily involved for about 15 years, but really kind of in charge for the last five, six. And I just kind of decided I don't need to be in charge of it anymore. So that was nice. Now I get to really enjoy it at just more of a show up and have a good time level. Uh, so, so yeah, uh, it's just been kind of running all around, uh, busy with work now and, you know, looking forward to Thanksgiving. Already got, uh, bought the turkeys, bought two turkeys for Thanksgiving. Well, actually not both of them for Thanksgiving, but the price was so good, Tim. 87 cents a pound for Butterball. And so I decided to grab two. And then this way I'll have one two for pounds. Christmas. <laughs> so I decided <laughs> yeah. to go for two pounds of turkey this year. <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, uh, two 22-pound turkeys. And uh, this way I'll have one ready for Christmas if we decide to do it at Christmas. And if not, well, then I just got a really good deal on a Butterball turkey. So I'm good to go. How about you, sir? On Saturday, I went to a concert with my uncle in Hollywood. Uh, the band was called The Sweet. They sing, they do a ballroom blitz, and they also sing Fox on the Run and Little Willie and Love is Like Oxygen. Glam rock band from the early 70s. Currently, one member is has his own rendition of the band. He calls it the West Coast rendition of The Sweet. Uh, he's the bassist, and he does backup vocals, and it's based in L.A. And then the other bandmates, they have their version of The Sweet, proper sweet, I'll call them, over in Europe someplace. So we went to go see the West Coast Suite. Uh, I've seen them before a few years back, and they were fantastic. However, this time around, they had a new singer. And the new singer singer was trying to be Freddie Mercury. He was putting down the original bassist, like coughing up jokes at his expense, and it was kind of sad to watch. But on top of it, the audience seemed to be comprised of young people who were paid to be there. And a lot of them maybe know... Fox on the Run because of it being included in the trailer for one of the Guardians of the Galaxy's movies, and Ballroom Blitz because of Wayne's World. And you can tell that this was the crowd that they were catering to for some reason, because they did a 10-minute, 15-minute 
rendition of a Doors song when they had all these other great songs that they did uh, as a melody for some reason. But the most bizarre thing that happened at this concert, there were these two couples that made it a point to be standing in front of me and my uncle, and they were pretty much right in front of the stage. I mean, I can't pass judgment, but they didn't look like the type of people that were big fans of the suite. So all of a sudden, a camera guy pops up out of nowhere and starts recording them. The camera guy is fa- is like right in front of me, holding this big-ass camera, and he's just recording these two people. So for the first time in my life, I yelled at a professional in the middle of him doing a job. In public, in front of an entire band that I was excited to go see, and made him stop doing his job and move because he was in my way. I didn't think about it till later on when we were leaving the show, but my uncle made a comment that they were probably shooting a reality TV show, like a dating show. He thought it was like The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, and this was like one of their dating videos. And I like not dating videos, but I guess they do like these segments where they go to concerts and whatnot, and you need that concert footage. And so I was talking to my uh, to my wife about this, and she confirmed that oh yes, more than likely that could have been a thing that ha- that was going on because they do that. That's like a popular thing that they do in the Bachelor, Bachelorette, and whatever dating show. So I, the concert was not great because the guy, the lead singer, was a dick. But really, yelling at the camera guy because they decided to shoot a segment for a dating reality show at this concert for a band that people really don't know who they are. It was a very bizarre, you know, mixture of circumstances to be involved in on a Saturday evening in Hollywood. (laughs) Well, I mean, if nothing else, you can you've got this amazing story to tell Uh, story. Yes, I wouldn't necessarily call it amazing. But thank you. I guess we should go ahead and jump right into our news segment. What do you say, sir? Let's do that. All right, folks. Here we go. It's the news. Okay, so first up for my news, I I would like to actually spend some time talking about something that's not a news article. But if you would like to play along at home, I would encourage you to go check out the Fantasy Island trailer available on YouTube or any other streaming site that you would like. Um, I'm going to leave it up to the sterling sensibilities of my co-host as to whether or not you'll hear it here. But I did have Tim listen to, or listen to, I'm sorry, I had, did have Tim watch the trailer uh, before the show because I had watched the teaser, uh, well, the vast majority of the teaser, and was thoroughly interested by this idea. And so I wanted to take a moment and talk about this trailer for this movie. And, well, Tim... What did you think about this trailer? We were talking about this for a minute during our pre-show, and when I first heard that they were doing a Fantasy Island remake, or I don't, I guess can't really say it was remakes, they never really made a Fantasy Island movie to begin with, but just a Fantasy Island movie based on the TV show, I wasn't necessarily concerned, 
because I wasn't a huge fan of the TV show back in the day. Not that I didn't, I don't like it, but I just didn't uh, really but, watch it. But which version of the TV show did you watch? Oh well, like the original. Okay, I watched yeah. both. The they the I actually I guess maybe because of the time of life that I was at when I watched, I actually liked the remake with uh, McDowell better than. The one with uh, Montalban. Montalban. And that was what, like, late 90s, early 2000s when the McDowell one? Yes, I would say 2000 to 2002, maybe 99 to 2002, something like that. I really like the concept of Fantasy Island. I mean, it's cool. You You go on vacation to this beautiful tropical island to live out, to relive your fantasies or live out your fantasy. You know, something that you've kind of lived before or maybe you've always dreamed of living you know being a secret agent being a you know latin lover i mean i'm going back to the to the ricardo montalban uh you know years when it was more of like a love boaty you know movie of the week type of feel um so i mean if if you want i mean if somebody wanted to make a movie about people going to an island to relive a fantasy or to live out a fantasy, the movie had to be called Fantasy Island. And it had to be a remake or an adaption of the TV show. But you could not adapt the Ricardo Montalban TV show and do a movie unless it was like a spoof. So I was pleasantly surprised when I uh, went back and watched the trailer after we were talking about it. Uh, because it's definitely, I, it, I mean, it has like a fun twist and you can tell that it's not showing you everything, you know, in the trailer. Like there's something else going on and that itself makes it interesting. Kind of like Cabin in the Woods, I guess. Exactly. That's actually kind of what really pulled me in. When I first see the opening moments of it and I'm like, okay, well this appears to be interesting and then of course then you see the blumhouse thing and you're like okay now wait a minute how the hell are they going to turn this into a horror movie um because that's all blumhouse is known for i mean if you think lion if you think back to Lionsgate, it got its start way back in the day with saw uh and then eventually got lucky when it struck gold with uh the hunger games and i'm presuming that's what blumhouse is going to do from here on out (laughs) they're just going to continue to make um, low-risk, high-reward movies in these horror films and genres until they hit a couple of lucky streaks and get something a la Hunger Games and then kind of take it to the next level. Uh, good luck with that because it seems that A24 has already beat them to it. But, you know, whatever. Uh, we'll, we'll see. There's always room for... Uh, I guess there's room for more in this, in this regard. Uh, but then when you do actually see how they plan on bringing the horror elements to the film, I think they got a shot at making something worthwhile. I mean, I will give it that. They, they've definitely got a shot at making something worthwhile. So I'm hoping that it, I'm, I'm actually curious now to, to see it. Uh, I did, however, go back and look. Believe it or not, the, uh, Malcolm McDowell one is, um, 1998 and only one season. And you watched it when it was on. I did not watch it. I well, gosh, hang on. Um, no, I guess I caught reruns of it. Um, r- right at 
2000, in the year 2000, because me and my um, cousin were roommates and we also used to work a shift together um, for Lucent Technologies at the time. We helped build all sorts of crazy stuff, guidance systems for missiles and yada, yada, yada. Um, and we would get off work. We worked the, uh, two to 10 PM shift. So we would get off work at 10 and then go out and goof off until like two o'clock in the morning and then go home. And we would literally before crashing, we would watch, um, fantasy Island. Don't ask me why it just was on because Freakazoid had went off the air, I guess. I'm not sure. And we would sit there and watch that. And then uh, as that show would end, then we'd go to bed. So that's how I ended up watching the series. It's just it was on every night. And I don't remember watching repeats. But, hey, there you go. How's that for syndication? (laughs) So what are the chances that they're going to have a... 3D or CGI recreation of Tattoo in the new movie. Oh man, I have no idea. Uh, Hervé Villachez, uh, I guess. Um, he, I, I have no idea. The question is if they do the CGI recreation, will it be with or without the go kart? That's the question. <laughs> <sighs> anyway, yeah. So. Um, that, I just wanted to talk about it. I thought that was cool. And please go ahead, give us some news, sir. What do you got? All right. First up for me, via the HollywoodReporter.com, director of new James Dean movies speaks out over backlash to stars casting. Uh, this was published on November 7th, and it was written by Sharia Drury, S-H-A-R-A-R-E-H. I think Sharia. Director of new James Dean movie speaks out over backlash to stars casting. That, of course, is the James Dean, not the porno actor James Dean. There's no new, you know, young, hot star named James Dean now. We are talking about the original James Dean, who died in the 50s. Um, And the article says this. We don't really understand it. We never intended for this to be a marketing gimmick according to director Anton Ernst, who told The Hollywood Reporter in response to negative criticism on Dean's posthumous casting, how does one pursue casting an actor posthumously, specifically James Dean, who died nearly seven decades ago in a car crash at the age of 24? Director Anton Ernst, who along with co-director Tati Goylik, announced last Wednesday that their Vietnam War-era drama Finding Jack will feature the late actor as a prominent character, believes the key to the whole process is, quote, respect, end quote. Finding Jack, the first project from the filmmaker's recently launched Magic City Films Company, tells the story of an American soldier, Fletcher, who, after losing his wife, travels to Vietnam and befriends a war dog that saves his life. 
Dean, who died before the start of the Vietnam War, will play a secondary lead in the film named Rogan. Social media backlash has followed the announcement. Actor Chris Evans criticized the decision as, quote, shameful, end quote. And Zelda Williams, whose late father Robin Williams restricted exploitation of his image for 25 years following his death, expressed her disdain over the choice, saying, quote, it sets such an awful precedent for the future of performance, end quote. Ernst spoke with The Hollywood Reporter about the criticisms on social media, saying he was saddened and confused over the overwhelmingly negative comments, saying, quote, We don't really understand it. We never intended for this to be a marketing gimmick, end quote. When searching for an actor to play Rogan, Ernst said he and his co-director did audition live actors. They ultimately decided Dean was the perfect fit for the role, as Rogan is a, quote, very brilliant, complex character, end quote, which is, quote, pretty much how James Dean was perceived, end quote. Quote, we searched high and low for the perfect character to portray the role of Rogan, which has some extreme complex character arcs. And after months of research, we decided on James Dean, end quote, Ernst told THR. Magic City Films obtained the rights to use Dean's image from his living relatives, represented by CMG Worldwide. Dean's name and likeness have been used in several advertising and merchandise campaigns over the years, including those of Dolce & Gabbana, Allure Eyewear, H&M, and Jose Cuervo. Ernst said that Dean's estate, which is run by two cousins on the late actor's father's side, has been, quote, supportive, end quote, of the film, and believes they would not have expected such a backlash to occur. And then I'm just going to skip down to the very end of the article. Canadian VFX banner Image Engine will be working alongside South African VFX company Moy Worldwide to recreate Dean. Uh, the actor will be constructed via full-body CGI using archival footage and photos, while another actor will voice him. Uh, then I'll skip down a little bit further. When discussing whether re resurrecting Dean digitally crosses a line with regards to posthumous casting, Ernst explained, quote, Anyone that is brought back to life, you have to respect them, end quote. And he noted, lastly, that Fisher's posthumous appearance in the Star Wars franchise, saying that if the actress expressed never wanting to be in a film after her death, or if her legacy or that of the franchise could be tarnished because of her casting, then that should be a line. Uh, and that's pretty much it. I'm sorry, folks. This, to me, is just silly. How could this guy not expect there to be backlash? And they decided on... James Dean, because he was the only one that fulfilled someone who was very brilliant and a complex character, like, I, there are plenty of people out there. They could have even brought in Daniel Day-Lewis just to come in and have him play freaking James Dean. You know? Like, what? There, I, I find this absolutely ridiculous. You're taking away a role from an actual actor. The idea of it, I think, is just ludicrous. What, what do you think about this, Matt? In a word... Stupid. <laughs> no, uh, it really is stupid. I saw this Onion article that was talking about, you know, oh, dear God, no, or oh, make it stop as uh, James Dean disappears from heaven while they complete the CGI. I just do not understand how this could in any way, shape, or form 
be remotely seen as a good idea. There, it, it's, I, I, in, in a way, in a very twisted way, I think it's sweet that they're trying to do this, that they really care so much about James Dean and his performance and what it could do to a movie of this stature that they're willing to go through all this effort. But that definitely falls into the category of thanks. I hate it. Um, and, and just, just don't just stop. Just stop. It, 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 it doesn't work. It doesn't work the way you think it's supposed to work. Uh, and, and that's what, that's what I think. Right. And it's like, how, how much are they going to spend to make this movie? Is this going to be a $200 million produced film or is it going to be a $15 million, you know, produced film? I mean, everything I've read, it just sounds like more, it's going to be more of a lower budget. I could be, I could be completely wrong about it. It's just, what's the, there's no point to it. There's no point. James Franco is a pretty, is, is more of a decent actor and he still kind of looks like James Dean. If you want to get that look and that broodiness, I'm sure even James Franco can satisfy you. I don't, I don't know. It just sounds like they're ch- wanting to chase that technical Oscar. And it may be just as simple as that. I think, however, it will not be fruitful. Yeah. But at any rate, um, yeah. So last but not least for me from Yahoo.com by way of Zach Scharf at IndieWire. Um J.J. Abrams says new Star Wars won't play it safe like Force Awakens, thanks to Ryan Johnson. I'm sorry, Ryan Johnson. Uh, after Ryan Johnson delivered one of the most polarizing Star Wars movies to date with 2017's The Last Jedi, it's not too surprising Lucasfilm reteamed with the Force Awakens filmmaker J.J. Abrams to close out the new trilogy and the entire nine-film Skywalker saga with Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. Abrams' Force Awakens was a beloved nostalgia trip that grossed $936 million in the U.S., still the highest-grossing domestic release in history, while Johnson's Last Jedi was a more challenging vision that showed little interest in paying off popular fan expectations. Um, and so Abrams says, quote, In Episode Seven, I was adhering to a kind of approach that felt right for Star Wars in my head. It was about finding a visual language, like shooting on locations and doing practical things as much as possible. And we continue that in Episode Nine, but I also found myself doing things that I'm not sure... I would have been doing as daring to do on episode seven and all quotes there. Um, Abrams goes on to credit the storytelling risks of Johnson's The Last Jedi as he says, quote, Ryan helped remind me that that's why we're on these movies, not to just do something that you've seen before. I won't say that I felt constrained or limited on seven, but I found myself wanting to do something that felt more consistent with the original trilogy than not. And on nine, I found myself feeling like I'm just going to go for it a bit more. And all quotes there. Um, the last thing I will say is that uh, Abrams says that uh, Johnson's Star Wars really did fit into the larger narrative, it wasn't just kind of this gone off the reservation kind of thing where Johnson just did whatever he wanted just for the sake of doing whatever he wanted. So Abrams bringing it all home is not just trying to salvage some stuff. And to that end, I would then say, then why the hell did you get rid of Ryan Johnson? I don't know. Um, 
Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I gotta be honest here. Tim, I would love to know your thoughts too. I don't exactly believe him. Uh, they, I, I, I have long since maintained, I get that seven had a lot of work to do. So if you, you know, so just by kind of making it 4.5, okay, I get it. I forgave it that. I think there were a ton of issues with Last Jedi. I've already said that, but the back end of Last Jedi was awesome. And then they get rid of Ryan Johnson and now they're bringing Abrams back to make sure that the, that this closes out well and that people won't forever hate this. Although at the same time, Disney's also said, yeah, I guess we're going to cool our jets on making Disney, on, on making Star Wars movies that go to the theater. Um, and with all that, I then come back and ask, why'd you get rid of Johnson? Well, Ryan Johnson, he's, He's having his own trilogy that he's producing, apparently. I know, but... And he's been doing some other things as well. I know he just did something with uh, Scarlett Johansson. There was a, There's an article, uh, an actual interview article, where Chris Evans interviews Scarlett Johansson in Variety. Um, so if you want to read about that, they actually talk to each other about um, the, the marriage contract the long marriage or something uh that's the one that scarlett johansson did with ryan johnson and then uh chris evans was obviously in knives out but so i mean i get that johnson's got other projects or whatever it just seems really weird that it was that last jedi was so divisive they then subsequently will just say shuffle johnson around Okay. Uh, and then bring Abrams back. And now Abrams is like, no, I'm going to go out there on a limb just like, uh, just like Johnson did. And, 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 you know, basically Johnson did nothing wrong. (laughs) Um, I don't know. We're not, I know you don't particularly care as much, but what do you think? What do you think? Well, you really, you can't go back to the easygoing light sensibilities that was, in the force awakens uh, he has to you know deal with the cards that were dealt to him after the last jedi you know ryan johnson's movie so i mean you can't be conventional after that because you'll just be backtracking so at this point why not just keep going but it's not going to be as divisive as uh as as return of the jedi it, it cannot be. It's J.J. Abrams. He's a little more clean cut. He's a little bit more stylistic. He's, to me, I look at him as more of a professional uh, filmmaker, more of a professional storyteller. And he cares about these characters. And he does care about his audience, um, despite what he said in that article. I think we're going to get more of a film that feels... I, I think we're going to get a film that feels more like the Star Wars that we all know and love... But again, at this point, who really cares? We're all going to go see the movie. People are going to go see it twice, three times. It doesn't matter. I, I, I prefer The Force Awakens to The Last Jedi. Okay. I, I, I like the risks of The Last Jedi. I just don't like how those risks were, were accomplished you know, not accomplished, but I don't like how those risks were actually, uh, how, how we went about taking those risks. Getting from point A to point B to point C, I like the points, I like the destinations, I just don't like how, what they're comprised of. So, 
if anybody that can do anything like that and still be passable as a classic, you know, air quotes here, Star Wars flick, then it would be J.J. Abrams. So I'll, I'll give him that. Okay. And I suppose I can also fill you in on what happens with uh, any other Star Wars related Disney stuff in about six hours when Disney Plus kicks off. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Are you just going to binge watch all of Mandalorian or whatever? I have no idea. I, I, I am still planning. I'm not going to lie. I am still planning to get through The Simpsons. Don't ask me why. I, I know it's ill-advised. I get that. I, I totally get that. But, I'm gonna, but I think I'm going to do it. <laughs> oh, I would. Oh, I totally would. Uh, yeah, five hours, 57 minutes, and 31 seconds as I say this line. Very good. So then, yeah, that closed it out with Yahoo.com uh, by way of IndieWire and Zach Scharf. J.J. Abrams says new Star Wars won't play it safe like Force Awakens, thanks to Ryan Johnson. And with that, I guess we will talk about the opening set or the bonus segment for next week, which will just be news again. And then we are now ready to talk about some movies, are we not, sir? We are indeed. Then let's move it up, folks. It's... The movie we Okay, so um due to the family reunion, the aforementioned family reunion, I am unable to talk about Dr. Sleep. Uh Tim has been gracious enough to move Dr. Sleep to next week so that we can both talk about it together. So uh, we're really only going to be talking about this wonderful Netflix movie called Dolomite Is My Name. Hey, you know, Auntie, I was thinking about putting out a comedy record. Comedy? You've been a singer, a shake dancer? It's real hard to break in. I do whatever it takes to get in. I come up with a new character. Dolomite is my name, and fucking up motherfuckers is my game. Oh, he's bad. What'd you do to your hair? You look like a pimp. It's all pretend. I just created a character. Dolomite. <laughs> you true. Pull on that. Oh, oh that's a wig. That's right. Whatever it takes, I'm ready to do it. I got to be totally outrageous. It's filthy. You've got a product here that you can't sell or promote. All my life, people been telling me no. Rudy, sometimes our dreams just don't come true. A man slam a door in my face, I just find another door. I want the world to know I exist. You can write. This ain't funny. And it ain't no brothers in it either. If I get up in that light with my own movie, I could be everywhere all at once. Let's bring Dolomite to the screen. The actors we hire, you're a bit doughier than them. Doughier? Hey, that's Durban Martin. I'm offering you a role in my new motion picture. You think you could just walk up here and hire me? No. What if we let you direct? In storytelling, it's always best to write what you know. You ain't nothing to talk about my personal life. I deal with the nightlife, club owners and mobsters and lots of pimps and kung fu. <laughs> Do you know karate? No, but I'm a fast learner. I can learn how to chop me a motherfucker. Action. Dolomite, give it to me. Put your weight on it. 
pretending like he could be a sex machine. What planet is this cat on? Damn! This thing flops, you're gonna be working for free for the rest of your life. I'm so grateful for what you did for me. Cause I never seen nobody that looks like me oh, yeah. up there on that big screen. So, 2019 American Biographical Comedy. Uh, this one's directed by Craig Brewer. It's written by Scott Alexander and Larry Karazuski. Uh, this one, of course, stars Eddie Murphy as the legendary filmmaker, comedian, Rudy Ray Moore, best known for his stand-up character of Dolomite. Uh, it also stars Divine Joy Randolph, Keegan-Michael Key, Mike Epps, Craig Robinson, Titus Burgess, uh, Burgess and Wesley Snipes. Um, and it's basically, you are literally seeing how Rudy Ray Moore came up with the character, developed the character of Dolomite, busted his ass promoting the character of Dolomite, and then subsequently was able to, um, turn it into the successful franchise that he was known for for the rest of his life. Um, and I gotta say, I really think that Eddie Murphy has done just an absolutely outstanding job here. Now, I did look a little bit of the pre-production stuff. Um, apparently, this has been some kind... I don't necessarily say a passion project for him, but definitely something that he has... Um, wanted to do for a long time and um it didn't really start coming around until the last couple of years and up until last uh june actually so of 2018 that they really got anything going when they signed on uh craig brewer um netflix of course produced so yeah that's what we got going on there the movie though does something really interesting. It unabashedly explains why black exploitation was popular at the time. And I think that's something that has never really been explored properly. Now, I'm not, not talking about documentaries or anything like that. And I'm not talking about books and articles where you can actually get into scholarly debate about the use of and the understanding of black exploitation in cinema. No, 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 no. What I'm talking about is in a in an actual film, I don't think that I've ever seen where you get an actual explanation for why black exploitation worked at the time that it did. And Dolomite is my name absolutely explores that. You are you are truly starting to see what was happening with the cultural shift in America vis-a-vis black pop culture. And you truly get a sense of understanding that despite a rise in black culture and pop culture and things that we would see as white Americans coming to the fore say, later on in the decade, mid to the decade, um, in, in, like, good times and other shows that would ultimately evolve into things that we would get, like, uh, The Cosby Show, uh, Family Matters, things of that nature. It had to start somewhere. And what you're starting, and, and the, the somewhere it started is in a still 
very divided America. And this story of Rudy Ray Moore completely helps to shed a light on that. And the real pivotal scene in the movie is when uh, Rudy Ray Moore and his friends, they go out to a movie around Christmas time, and they go to see a um, oh, uh, front page. They go and see the movie The Front Page, which is a movie that actually was the odd couple team of Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau, and it was seen as one of the hugest biggest best movies of the year um and they go and see this movie and they're looking around going we don't get it what is so funny about this and for them that it just wasn't part of their culture they didn't get it and so they wanted something that they would get and rudy ray moore realizing what he had in his dolomite character decides that he wants to make this movie so you get kind of the you don't just get them making it's it's not like when they showed um uh the making of the room um oh good lord the disaster artist thank you the disaster artist yes um it's not like where it's just centered around the making of this terrible movie they really do go into the life and times of Rudy Ray Moore as it as it matters to the official character of Dolomite that he created, which even he took from stories that the homeless would tell. And, and I also think it's really cool that the rhythms and the stylings that he used and the music that he had backing him as he would perform led to his being known as the godfather of rap. So, if nothing else, if you could take nothing else away from this movie, you need to understand just important, how important to all of pop culture, to a, to a great deal of cinema as a whole, how important Rudy Ray Moore was. And what I think makes it so great is that Eddie Murphy understands the character he's portraying. And he's not doing things to be sappy. He's not doing things to overplay his hand. He's not doing things to be purely Oscar bait. But there's a really powerful scene in this movie that I think totally sums up both Rudy Ray Moore and, um, and Eddie Murphy all wrapped into Dolomite is my name. There is a scene in the film where, um, Derville Martin, who is portrayed beautifully by Wesley Snipes, uh, he is both the villain of uh, the Dolomite film and the director of the Dolomite film. And he's just consistently bagging on everything he sees, bagging on what's going on. And eventually Rudy gets really, really pissed off. And he's like, look, you know, we're not, we know that we're not good at this. We know that we're new. We know that we do not have the level of professionalism that you're used to seeing, but we will do what it needs to be done. If someone needs a sandwich, I'll go down and make it. If someone needs to do what, you know, what what's going to happen, we're going to work together to get this done. And you don't need to be, you know, getting all over us about it. It's a wonderful scene. And in, and in the wrong hands, 
it would come off as hammy. It would come off as, <clears throat> it would, it would come off as, um, you know, overplayed, overacted. And in the wrong hands, I think someone would have tried to play it for, for tears and for sadness instead of righteous indignation which is how Eddie Murphy played it. And I think he just handles it well. Um, I think, the, but that's not to say it's a perfect movie because it's not a perfect movie. I think one of the things that the movie um, fails to do is keep the pace up. I think that there are certain spots in the movie around the one-third mark that just kind of stretch out the story so that you can kind of see the different parts of the struggles that he would have had and um, the different parts of the struggles that he would have had and then give you more of a reason for him to overcome them. But it's not really necessary. We already kind of get an idea of what he is, what he's like, who he's trying to be, the character he's trying to create, and the kind of person he really was. And instead, you could just kind of focus on just that. Um, so it does kind of drag around the one third part. Uh, I'd say if I could, if I could give it anything, I would probably take about 12 minutes off the movie. Um, you know, so honestly, almost 10% of the movie. And that's, that's quite a lot when you're dealing with something as simple as stand up, parlayed into record deal, parlayed into making a movie that we already know is going to be a success. Um, so I give this one, oh, I was thinking of giving it a four. Now I kind of want to give it a four and a half. I uh, don't really want to do the quarter star thing. Uh, uh, Mm, four. I'm going to stay at four. It is a really, really good movie. It's a solid, solid movie. But it hangs enough, especially around the one-third part and in other little parts that I that I just can't go all the way to four and a half. But I really kind of want to because I think Eddie Murphy really treats this project well. He acts it well. It's directed well. Um but yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick to my guns on the four. Uh, what do you got there, Tim? Bring us home, sir. So the director of this film, Craig Brewer, is working on with Eddie Murphy coming to America, part two. Well, the title is coming to America with the two as the number two. Uh, so after watching this movie, are you looking more forward to the sequel? Yes. Me too. Um, I <laughs> don't have a lot to say about Dolomite is my name. Because it was a very enjoyable film. Um, Craig Brewer, as a director, crafted a very interesting world and let Eddie Murphy and cast kind of do their own thing. Portray these characters, you know, leading them down this path to get from point A to point B. And every and yet everything just feels absolutely natural. Some of the side characters definitely feel like, you know, characters in a biopic. Um, for example, what is his name? Oh yeah. Keegan, Michael key has like an accent and sometimes he tends to overact in roles like this. Uh, same thing with like Titus, uh, Burgess, Titus Burgess plays 
I think his name is also Titus in uh, in uh, the Unbreakable, the Unbreakable or the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, uh, that really goofy Tina Fey Netflix show. He's a great character in that in that in that uh, show. So I was really looking forward to seeing his acting chops in this movie. Really, he was kind of playing his same character, but less flamboyant and less over the top. Um, but your core characters, Eddie Murphy, Wesley Snipes, even the lady who played uh, Lady Reed, uh, Divine Joy Randolph, or I think just Divine, um, did a wonderful, wonderful job. So the movie itself was an actual... I, I thought it was a pleasant surprise because given it's a Netflix movie, given it's a it's a biopic, um, a, uh, a a period biopic, I really didn't know what to think. Um, I laughed my butt off at the trailer. I laughed my butt off uh, at, at the clips that I saw. And that all that alone just kind of sold me on this uh, on the on the film, which all sold me on the film um, so I can go watch it. And granted, it is your. Uh, and granted, it does follow your typical biopic formula, because uh, it's written by a guy named Larry Kras Kras <laughs> Larry uh, Larry Karazuski, uh, who wrote the biopics for uh, Ed Wood and the People Very, uh, versus Larry Flint. You know, so the film definitely follows kind of the biopic where you see the rise and the and the the potential fall of the character and then the rise for its denouement. Um, yet with the cast, <laughs> but yet Eddie Murphy, Wesley Snipes and divine and also Craig Brewer and, and, and the, and the writer, they just created something unique that still felt fresh and was incredibly entertaining to watch. The movie is not short. It's an hour, uh, it's, uh, it's like an hour and 50 minutes. It's close to two hours. And I enjoyed all 118 minutes of it. Um, I didn't think it was necessarily too slow. I mean, maybe there were some slow points, Matt, what you were talking about. I do definitely agree with you, but I still ultimately enjoyed it. Um, I give it a 4.5 out of 5. This is definitely Eddie Murphy's best live-action performance since Dreamgirls, which was back in 2006. And this is by far his best film, period, uh, I thought, since 1999's Bowfinger. So if that says anything, Eddie Murphy is due for a comeback. And I think this was a great comeback for him. It worked wonderfully, and it definitely showcased his talents as a character actor as a comedian and just an all-around performer he did a wonderful wonderful job i am definitely looking forward forward to uh coming to america too all right well then that brings us to the end of the movies for this week next week's movie is dr sleep and we will have some form or fashion of the following movies we've got parasite jojo rabbit and ford versus ferrari so look for that definitely dr sleep though and without further ado i believe it is now time for the spiel is it not sir spiel on you set him up and i'll knock him back lloyd one by one white man's burden lloyd my man white man's burden Lloyd, it seems I'm temporarily late. <laughs> How's my credit in this joint, anyway? Your credit's fine, Mr. Torrance. 
That's swell. I like you, Lloyd. I always liked you. You were always the best of them. Best goddamn bartender from Timbuktu to Portland, Maine. Or Portland, Oregon, for that matter. Thank you for saying so. Alright, well the music we've been listening to as always has been brought to us by music partners Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we have of course the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt on Twitter at Nitwit12345. You can of course come aboard that information to your and track down to on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and our favorite on Stitcher Radio, as well as track us down to the old Spotify, Google Play, and other podcasts directories. If you'd like to support the show, head on over to patreon.com and check us out over there. And so until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Craig Robinson, I get to say this. You've got to talk to your kids as both a parent and a friend. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Madam, perhaps we should be going. Oh, there we are, monsieur. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>